0: You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole. This week's episode is the live audio from a recent committee luncheon with Jason Klitenik, the general counsel of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, discussing security clearance reform, the CFIUS process, and supply chain risk management. Please enjoy this episode and join us again next week when we play part two of our conversation with Jim Baker, the former general counsel of the FBI. If you'd like to come to one of our events in person, the next standing committee breakfast will be on March 13th, that's Friday, March 13th, in Washington, D.C., with John Sopko, the Special Inspector General for the Afghanistan Reconstruction. We hope to see you there.
1: Thank you, Cindy, for that, that introduction, and And I I want the record to reflect, Cindy, that um, that position that you interviewed for um, as, as you may recall the only reason that you did not um, were not selected for that position is because that position was eliminated before it was ever created and so we're so excited we had Cindy Cindy was going to be joining us only to learn that actually the position is not going to exist and so that was an awkward moment for me professionally um, but but not not the last awkward moment I've had in government service Um but great to be here. Thank you to Cindy, um, Harvey, Holly for reaching out and and um, for Bill for the invitation. I, I used to come to these when I was in private practice, and um, and I wasn't geographically I wasn't far from here. I was just a few blocks away, and I would I would tag along with Judge Sessions to come to these wonderful lunches, and it was so amazing. And so now to be standing up here, actually addressing the room, is somewhat surreal for me. Um, but, uh, but now that I'm across the river, it is, uh, it, it's coming downtown. I can feel, like, the stress building in my chest. And, uh, I'm downtown, it's like the oppression. that I get back across the river and the, the land of milk and honey. And, but um, but it's, ni- it's nice to be and what I tell people when I'm in you know, events like this. So it's so exciting uh, for me to be here and see all these friendly faces, but also to be in a room with, with windows and uh, light and not in a skiff And, uh, you know, we're not in a vault, and it's so wonderful. And because we are in a uh, a room with windows, and we're not in a skip, and we're not in a vault, I I have a script, right? (laughs) So my remarks, typically I like to be unscripted. Some of you who may know me may see me um, speak, and and they probably think it's best that Jason be on script. But today I have a script. I have a script Um, for some of you who heard me speak not too long ago that remarks ben harvey may sound painfully familiar so you can just give some knowing nods at the right moment it's like oh that's a great idea jason i hadn't heard that before Um, but once you get the script cleared by the people who have to clear it, you just want to take it and run with it so i feel like i robbed the bank i've got my script it's cleared we're good to go um but again i just want to want to thank you all and just want to touch on a a few um, subjects that I, i hope will be of interest to you I guess before I get into my script, you know, Cindy said, I've been in the job for about a year and a half. And I, I do tell people that um, it, it is, you know, the, the year and a half, nearly two years I've, I've been in this job, it's been the greatest 10 years of my life. Because we do, we do sort of operate it at warp speed. It's hard, time bends, it's hard to describe, it's hard to describe what it's like kind of day in, day out. The people are fantastic, greatest group of people I've ever worked with. Uh, The issues are fascinating, um, but just the pacing is just pretty um, inspiring. That's how I put it. The pacing is inspiring. And so you'll have these moments where, and it's happened at least twice, and Brad is here to vouch for me. It's happened at least twice. Don't be alarmed. But where I will say to Brad, Brad, that meeting that we had on Monday, we really need to follow up on XYZ, and Brad's face will drop and and I'll think, oh, if I address the wrong issue, and then Brad will say, Jason, that, that meeting was this morning. You know, and it's sort of like, OK, I'm good. That never happened. That never happened. Um, but uh, but no, it's it's been just unbelievably, it sounds hackneyed to say, but it's just been unbelievably rewarding um, experience the people that we get to work with, the issues, and the, the community. It does feel, it is special. I've been in government before. I was at DHS and DOJ. But being in the community is something very different and um, just extremely special, and that's that's a very bad way of articulating it. But that's the best I can come up with. Um, so let me touch on a, a few subjects that I, I hope that you all will be interested in, and, and if if you're not, the exit's right there. You're free to leave at any moment. You know, but. Um, I want to talk about three things here listed. Um, The first is the reforms to the CPS process coming out of the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, FIRMA. The second thing I'm going to touch on is uh, the changes that we are making within the IC uh, to the security clearance process, um, what we refer to as Trusted Workforce 2.0. And then the final thing I'll touch on is the issue of supply chain risk management which is something that's a a priority for ODNI and um, something that if you all are in the community, I I know is a priority for you, or if you either work at a contractor or represent contractors and deal with cleared issues, I'm sure it's an issue for you all. Um, But maybe just to first start with the the CFIUS uh, process and recent reforms to it. Um, As many of you are aware, uh, Treasury recently released their um, highly anticipated uh, regulations um, they are effective February 13th, 2020. So this is next week. These are the regulations that will be applying to Firma. Um, and so I just again wanted to talk about the regs, but also maybe give you a sense because sometimes there are misperceptions of what the DNI's role is in the CFIUS process and kind of how we're we we participate in it. But our role is a little a little different than the other member agencies. Uh, the U.S. is always welcomed. Foreign investment. I don't think that's a controversial statement, um, and it's critical that we maintain open investment um, for the future. And so, what you're what you're seeing is you're uh, with these regs and actions that we take. You're trying to balance security with um, sort of economic impact. Um, And what we know now is that investments that pose the greatest potential threats to national security are no longer limited to just transactions resulting in foreign control of the U.S. business. For that reason, FIRMA provided much needed reforms to the CFIUS authorities, and I'll touch on that. FIRMA modernizes the jurisdiction of CFIUS to expand it to non-controlling investments that afford a foreign person certain access rights, or involvement in specific types of U.S. businesses. The new provisions on covered investments apply to investments in U.S. businesses involving critical technologies, critical infrastructure, sensitive personal data, specific types of real estate transactions, and certain other transactions. The SIPIAS review process still remains, as it has been, largely voluntary. Under FIRMA, however, there are some circumstances where filing a declaration is now mandatory. In particular, FIRMA creates a mandatory declaration requirement for certain covered transactions where a foreign government has a substantial interest. Also, FIRMA authorizes CFIUS to mandate declarations for covered transactions involving certain critical technologies. The new firma regulations also limit the application of CIFIUS's jurisdiction over non-controlling covered investments in certain real estate transactions by investors from accepted foreign states. Cipius identified these initial accepted foreign states as Australia, Canada, and the United Kingdom based on their robust information sharing and integration mechanisms with the U.S. defense industrial base. As a new concept with significant potential implications, Scipius wanted to start with a small number of accepted foreign states and might expand that list at a later date. Why are we doing all this? Because we know that our foreign adversaries are quietly attacking our nation's public and private sector, and they are using the channels of trade and investment as their vehicle to do so. Their target is the wealth of research, intellectual property, trade secrets, and personally identifiable information residing in our businesses. This brings me to my client's role in the CFIUS process. The Director of National Intelligence sits on the committee in a non-voting ex officio capacity as the representative of the IC. Our role is to provide CFIUS with an impartial analysis of any threat to national security posed by any covered transaction, including any operational impact on the IC's activities. To maintain the IC's independence by statute, We are to have no policy role on the committee, other than providing the threat assessment. It's important to distinguish the DNI's role from the overall role of CFIUS. The DNI's threat assessment identifies and analyzes the intent and capabilities of the foreign investor. This is consistent with the IC's foreign intelligence and counterintelligence mission and our underlying legal authorities. Our focus within the IC is on foreign actors involved in the transaction, rather than the U.S. businesses. The DNI's threat assessment then feeds into the CFIUS review of the overall risk to the national security posed by the transaction. This overall risk review entails more than just an analysis of the threat. Risk also includes vulnerabilities, which is an assessment of the aspect of the U.S. business that could impact national security. Finally, the Cipius risk assessment includes an analysis of the consequences to national security if the vulnerabilities were to be exploited or acted upon. Based upon its risk assessment for the covered transaction, Cipius has three options: it can clear the transaction without any conditions; it can clear the transaction conditioned on terms to mitigate any threat to national security arising from the transaction or CFIUS can refer the matter to the President for final action, including suspending or prohibiting the transaction. I think it's important for the audience to understand that when CFIUS reviews a covered transaction, we follow the same procedures and requirements regardless of the nature of the transaction. The intelligence community's threat assessment may differ based on the intentions and capabilities of a foreign intelligence entity, but we apply the same analytical standards and tradecraft to all covered transactions. Also, CFIUS is largely procedural in structure, and that procedural structure is transparent. While the DNI's threat analysis and CFIUS risks assessments may be classified, the process is laid out for the public in statute, as well as the final implementing regulations. Why is it important to say this? Because businesses and investors, foreign and domestic, need to be confident that the U.S. applies an objective, rule-based process while reviewing national security risks from foreign investment. While the US faces increasing challenges and threats from our foreign adversaries, our national security cannot come at the expense of economic security. Indeed, the agencies across government involved in the SIPIAS process and in the effort to implement FIRMA understand that these interests, national security and economic security, are inherently interconnected. And that's the balance we're all trying to achieve. Um, I'll next turn to uh, Trusted Workforce 2.0. This is our, and I'll talk a little bit about it, our um, effort to, I don't know if revamp is the right word, but to take a look at the security clearance process. This is where I have an opportunity to put in an anecdote. And uh, the anecdote is when I first joined... DNI, and I was, you know, so excited, and I had sort of a vision of the type of people that we would bring in and recruit, and people from government, different agencies, people in private practice that I had met along the way, and I was like, oh, you know, I worked along the way, you know, some young associates, and hardworking, and really you know, well credentialed and I think they would be a good fit for the office and, and, um, and I was looking, you know, people like Brad and Erica were nodding, you know, knowingly, yeah, yeah, that's great mm-hmm. and, and uh, they mentioned something about a security clearance process, I'm like yeah, that's incredibly important, got to make sure we're bringing in the right people and, and they're like yeah, that's great and then um, asked me questions like, well, you know, are these people patient I'm like, that's really odd, kind of an odd question to raise so early. I'm like, I think they're patient. I don't know. I've like, I've had lunch with them. They don't seem to get upset. The food's like coming. <laughs> and uh, and I was like, well, you know, why do you ask? But, well, you know, it could take, um, I don't know, 12 months, 18 months, which is you known as a year and a half in the morning. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, that's, you know, really valuable. Well, you know, what about, okay, then, well, let, let's focus on bringing people from, you know, our... Our, our brother and sister agencies within the community. Okay, great. And, you know, we'll interview someone early on. I was so naive in so many respects, and and like that's great. You know, like you know, I don't know what's for two weeks. Is that appropriate notice when they can start when I mean, they have all the clearances? And um, they'd be like, well, it's actually a little more complicated than that. And and it wasn't weeks. It was it was months and, and sometimes um, a lot of months. And, and then so I, I learned to be patient. I learned to be patient. And so that's a very long-winded way of saying we are taking a very serious look at the process, and it's something that we, you know, um, first of all, we're sensitive to contractors, industry, private sector. We get it, um, but you know, in the good news category, it's something that also directly impacts us all day, every day, and um, you know, a lot of the people that work for us come to us from different agencies, and they they are the lifeblood. Of how we within the ODNI function, so we just have also a vested interest in bringing in the right people, right people who should be trusted, who should hold clearances, but making sure it's done in a, um, in, a in as expeditious a manner as can be done and as is appropriate. So, back to the script. In March 2018, ODNI and the Office of Personnel Management, together with the Department of Defense and OMB launched the Trusted Workforce 2.0 effort, along with other partner agencies across the US government. This reform will apply to federal civilian, federal contractor, and military personnel, as well as state, local, tribal, and private sector personnel, subject to Executive Order 13549, known as Classified National Security Information Program for state, local, tribal, and private sector entities. The reform efforts and future standards will be applied uniformly to these populations. The effort is organized into two phases. Phase one is aimed at reducing and ultimately eliminating the inventory of open background investigations. And I'm pleased to report that there's been substantial progress in that area. In 2018, the inventory, we don't say backlog, inventory uh, stood at about 725,000 investigations. And today, it's around 231,000, which is not only a significant improvement, but returns us to what we call a steady state. So that's sort of like the pipeline. That's where it should be. Phase two, which is really the far more reaching piece, is aimed at establishing a new government-wide approach to security clearances and workforce vetting from the ground up. I think everyone who has ever touched the security clearance process and workforce vetting in any way understands that the current approach needs to be fundamentally re-engineered. Hence, my mini preamble leading up to this. Uh, Just to give you some broad strokes of where this is headed, there's a lot of focus on standardizing the security clearance procedures across federal departments and agencies so that there is one standard model for security clearances across the government. Among other things, the benefit of that will be to improve the mobility of our workforce, and that's what I was talking about earlier, about bringing people who already have clearances, all the clearances you would want and you would need, and to be able to move them from one agency, particularly within the IC, to another with as little effort as possible, Um, so that someone can take their clearance from one agency and move into a position at another agency without having to undergo a new, time-consuming background check. There will also be a Transition from the traditional periodic reinvestigation model to the future model of government-wide continuous vetting of all populations. A significant step towards this future model is the implementation of continuous evaluation, what we call CE. CE is designed to address a gap that currently exists in between background investigation cycles, where right now information relevant to an individual's continued eligibility for a clearance could go unreported or unknown for years. CE leverages technology to continually review the backgrounds of individuals who have been determined eligible for access to classified information in part by using automated checks of government and commercial databases that may contain relevant information. Another aspect of Trusted Workforce 2.0 is to examine the issue raised by industry concerning the sharing of information on individuals with cleared population within the cleared population. The extent to which the insider threat information can be shared with government contractors, for example, in cases where the vetting process uncovers something of concern about one of their employees, involves complex analyses of various bodies of law to include privacy law, personnel law, employment law, acquisitions, and information sharing laws. A legal working group has been established to examine avenues that would allow a reciprocal exchange of information between government and industry. This working group will inform the policymakers about legal barriers or obstacles to information sharing. For example, the working group will look at whether the Privacy Act of 1974 contains any exceptions that would permit the disclosure of information. If there is, the group will look at whether the disclosure comports with the IC's information sharing authorities. What does all this mean for the current, clearance holder, current clearance holders? Current clearance holders? Um, The good news, in general, nothing will change for them. No eligibility determinations or adverse actions are going to be taken as a result of the automated CE process without validation, investigation, and adjudication. All personnel, regardless of where they work, remain entitled to due process and redress. And it should go without saying that extensive measures have been taken to ensure the privacy protections required by law are maintained. We realize the mission need is clearly there, and I think all of us in positions of leadership acknowledge that both the IC and the private sector need to be close partners in ensuring that Trusted Workforce 2.0 is success for government and the private sector as well. And then the, the final subject that I'll, I'll touch on is um, supply chain risk management, um, and the reason that uh, we selected supply chain risk management is. Um, and again, at the risk of stating the obvious is, um, I guess, our organizations, both government, whether you're a law firms, companies, um, you know, our IT systems become more dependent on supply chain, and their resiliency is a big issue for all of us. Uh, and there's been a lot of activity in terms of both legislation and executive action on the front over the last few years, and I'll just highlight a few of those for you. Um, and there are four in particular that I'm going to highlight. The first is the Secure Technology Act of 2018, which established the Interagency Federal Acquisition Security Council, the FASC, and required all federal agencies to conduct a supply chain risk management assessment for their critical systems. The second thing is uh, Section 889 of the FY19 Defense National Defense Authorization Act, which among other things prohibits agencies from procuring or obtaining any telecommunications or video surveillance equipment and services provided by Huawei or ZTE, and further prohibits federal agencies from contracting with entities that use certain covered telecommunications equipment as a substantial or essential component in their systems. The third thing is Executive Order 13873, which came out just in uh, May of, of, uh, I would say this year, but like I said, time bends, 2019. seems like so long ago, Ben. I mean, where has the time gone? May 15, 2019, which prohibits any acquisition, importation, transfer, installation, dealing in, or use of any, quote, information or communications technology or service, where the Secretary of commerce, in consultation with the DNI, finds that the transaction involves ICTS that is designed, developed, manufactured, or supplied by persons owned by, controlled by, or subject to the jurisdiction or direction of a foreign adversary. And the transaction A poses an undue risk of sabotage to or subversion of the design, integrity, manufacturing, production, distribution, installation, operation, or maintenance of ICTS in the United States. B, poses an undue risk of catastrophic effects on the security or resiliency of the United States critical infrastructure or the digital economy of the United States. Or C, otherwise poses an unacceptable risk to the national security of the United States or the security and safety of United States persons. This executive order delegates to the Secretary of Commerce the authority to design or negotiate mitigation measures related to any such prohibition, which can then serve as a precondition for the approval of prohibited transactions. And then the fourth thing I'll just briefly touch on, um, and most recently, is the Intelligence Authorization Act of FY1819, which requires the DNI to establish a supply chain and CI risk management task force to standardize information sharing on supply chain and counterintelligence risks between the IC and the uh, US government acquisition community, and also requires the DNI to provide a report to Congress on threats and mitigations to 5G resulting from the acquisition, importation, transfer, installation, or use of any communications technology by persons subject to the jurisdiction of the United States that involves communications technology and tell me if this sounds familiar, designed, developed, manufactured, or supplied by, controlled by, or subject to the jurisdiction of a foreign adversary. So both Congress and the administration recognize the importance of taking action to address this threat, and they're giving us new authorities to deal with it. Accordingly, ODNI is fulfilling its role of providing to other federal agencies the threat intelligence that they need to use these authorities effectively. From our perspective as lawyers, the supply chain threat also raises some novel and complex legal issues with which we are grappling. Um, I think the challenges stem from one, the new laws, some of which I've just recited for you, the new laws on supply chain, two, existing but varying laws on information sharing, and three, varying procedures across departments and agencies as they relate to actions that can be taken in this space. And then we have just uh, just wanted to share with you a few types of questions that we're wrestling with, and of course. In sharing the questions with you, I'm not providing any answers. I'm just raising the questions, you know, for food for thought. But it just gives you a flavor for for some of our thinking in this and what the interagency is trying to uh, deal with. Um, So the first sort of category is how much information can we lawfully share? This comes up all the time. In particular, I'm talking about intelligence we might have pertaining to an article or source that we need to share with those that are making acquisition and sourcing decisions. And under what circumstances can we share it and with whom? And so, you know, an example, you know, maybe, for example, if we pick up information or intel that there's a product out there that may have a vulnerability, but we're aware of it, um, but gee, you know, the company may not be aware of it. How can we possibly, you know, make sure that the company, because it may be unwitting, you know, is aware of it? And, you know, things like, can the uh, information, can the intel, um, be um, crafted in a way so that it's you know, not classified? Um, can it? Can you do you know things like maybe a one-time read-on for select either members of the company or outside counsel? But it's it's a constant one of the constant challenges for us, and it's not just in this context. But you know we have information. If we have information that's actionable, it's, you know, how can we get it to appropriate people? Um, so that they can act upon it while um, performing probably our most critical mission, which is always protecting sources and methods. Uh, The second question, what actions on supply chain risk management can the government take on both federal and non-federal IT systems? Three, to what extent can federal agencies influence the conduct of our suppliers? How far can we go in terms of including contractual terms that impose security obligations and enforcing compliance with those obligations? And then fourth and finally, is there an obligation for the IC to engage with industry to propose mitigation measures? And I was touching on this just a moment ago. What are the consequences to the private sector, in particular government contractors, if those mitigation measures are not fully adopted? So those are just the types of questions that we're dealing with, Um, and again, sort of with I, I think that they are in some ways related but with trusted workforce 2.0 these these are things that for us are um, you know people ask me about the types of things that we work on these are types of things that we work on that I can actually share with you that, that are important and do occupy our time but um, but yeah and then then just in closing I, I just want to say how grateful I am to be here and it's uh, it's amazing I'm, I'm seeing you know people from you know all, all phases of my my life, I don't know if I have anyone here from my little league baseball team, but I go back pretty far with some of these people, you know, and and uh, and you know, I have I have family members who have been, you know, part of part of the effort over the years and and uh, so I'm seeing, you know, people that I, I've just have known for a really long time. So it's great to be here and with that I'll I'll turn it over to, to Harvey because Harvey's approaching me. Yeah, Harvey's approaching me. Yeah, thank you. Did not know you were
0: Thank you for tuning in this week. You can find links, as always, to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topics at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. We'll be back next week with Jim Baker, the former general counsel of the FBI, talking about the Operation Crossfire Hurricane Inspector General's report. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your podcast app of choice. Drop us a note at AmericanBar.org, or on Twitter at ABA NatSec. We welcome your feedback. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.